Good morning, everybody. Or whatever time of day you're listening to this. Maybe it's midnight where you are. Maybe it's dinner time. Maybe you're locked in a windowless room with no doors and your only connection to the outside world is this podcast. If that's the case, as of the day this episode releases, it will be two days before Valentine's Day, likely around 6 p.m. Wherever and whenever you are, hello! Welcome back to My Second Self and I. I am Matt. The weather here has been idiotic, so I'm sorry about the really nasally quality of my voice right now. Houston is stupid. Cold. Hot. Sunny. Rainy. Windy. Fucking windy. Hot. Cold again. That's not separate days of the week either. That's morning to night in one day. My sinuses hate it here. Plus, I live in a more rural area, and there's a lot of construction going on, so it's fucking dusty as shit, too, everywhere I go. Hey, what about me? I'm getting there. Chill out. That was Alex. He is the voice in my head that pops in from time to time. I'm the funny one. We're the same... (laughs) Never mind. Mucho thanks for listening to this episode and any of my other episodes. I really do appreciate that you take the time, and it takes me a while to put these together. It means a lot to me that I have any kind of audience. If you want to help me more, I'm guessing by this point you know what to do if you even know how to find a podcast these days. So go do that for me if you want. Otherwise, just sit back and enjoy the show. If this is your first time hearing me, though, I'm about to tell you a story about a brutal murder that took place about 25 years ago in South Carolina. And we're going to laugh around it. Not at it. Not in a ha-ha, look at what happened to that lady, she's an idiot kind of way. But there are a lot of decisions that go into a murder that normal people would look at, scratch their head, and say, what the fuck, how'd you decide on that? Particularly this one. I've read through everything on this case available to me multiple times, and there's several instances of me thinking, dude, what? Why would you? And things of that nature. Yeah, and he reads out loud, so I've had to suffer through all of it. You were going to be there anyway. At least you didn't have to be the one to read it. Whatever you say, Captain. All right, well, let's get on with it. The case we're going over today hasn't seen a ton of coverage by other podcasts, which I always find much more fun, especially when you consider how I found this. I was sitting in my car a few weeks ago, scrolling through Murderpedia like a totally normal person does in their car, and I clicked on a random state, scrolled with my eyes closed, and just poked at the screen a few times, and when I opened my eyes, it was this case. James Jimmy Robertson is still currently on death row for the crimes he committed in this story today. Parasite isn't super common in the world of true crime, but it's also not super uncommon either. Stacey Lannert, the Menendez brothers, Jennifer Pan, just to name a few of the more well-known cases. But now also this one, at least to me. I'm vaguely familiar with Jennifer Pan and the Menendez brothers, but I've never heard of Stacey Lannert before. Might just have to do all of those at some point. By the way, if you have a suggestion for an episode, leave a comment on the Facebook page or find me on Instagram at FunnyBaldWaiter. I'm also sort of new at Instagram. Why are there so many porn bots? And how many people actually fall for those? Like, it's it's a comical amount. Updates from last week, really quick. It didn't dawn on me until I had already uploaded the episode that Janice Poisson Farmer was the other mom. And what did you guys think of Night Mechanic? I've been tinkering around with some tunes, trying to find some better music for him, but I like the idea of that character, and I think it could be a lot of fun to see what kind of shenanigans he gets into. But let's get on with this story. Rock Hill, South Carolina. Before the town was founded, colonizers had been settling in small villages surrounding the area since the early 19th century. Originally, 
The railroad companies that would end up building the town wanted to route the tracks through a different area called Ebenezerville. I am not making that up. The residents of the village got together and summoned Mayor Methuselah to smite the heathen railway executives, claiming the locomotive would bring with it a cacophony of thunderous creaks and bellows. That part I did make up. There's no Mayor Methuselah. They wanted nothing to do with the railroad, though, said it would be too loud and dirty, so they sent them on their way to scout a different location a whopping two miles away, closer to the aptly named aforementioned hill. Rock Hill won its name in a contest between the founding families of the town. The Moore family, the Black family, and the White family, names not descriptions, all engaged in a friendly competition to see what they would name the town. At first, the gentlemen had a running contest to see who would name the town, but all three men were so horribly out of shape that nobody made it farther than four steps before being winded. The next challenge was a contest of strength. They all attempted to lift a very heavy boulder. The man who could successfully pick up the rock or move it at all would be declared the winner. Once again, all three men were so out of shape and still out of breath from the last challenge that they all injured their lower backs trying to pick up the rock. The last challenge is a test of skill. And this is a really interesting game that I think would probably catch on really well today. The rules of the game were quite simple and effective at settling arguments. Each participant would throw their hands down in a specific shape. You could either throw a fist, which is called rock. You can throw out a flat hand, which is called paper. Or you can just throw out your pointer and middle fingers to throw scissors. Each one loses to a different one. Rock to paper, paper to scissors, scissors, rock, yada, 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 whatever. And the name they chose for this game was brilliant in its simplicity. They called it Chess. Now, on to the game. Templeton Black and Jonathan Moore both threw scissors, while George Pendleton White threw rock. Ha ha, king me. George had won, but decided that his back hurt too badly to think of a better name and just went with his game piece, finally giving Rock Hill a proper title. The place being called Rock Hill is the only accurate part of that story. The rest is only true if you're exceptionally gullible and bad at history. I'm guessing it was named Rock Hill because it was a big-ass hill with a bunch of cool rocks on it. Construction of the railroad began in 1848 and was completed in 1852. By April of that year, we got us a town going, folks. The post office is open. Woo! Now that people can get stuff to and from here, the town can really start to thrive. I've got mail. There was a general store built nearby the station a few years prior to its completion to provide resources for the construction workers. Then in 1854, the first school in Rock Hill was built. Hooray, education! It was called the Rock Hill Academy, because early America had no originality with the names back then. However, almost no one called it the Rock Hill Academy, choosing instead to call it the Pine Grove Academy, because it was, say it with me, surrounded by a grove of pine trees. You didn't say it with me. The school was founded by Anne Hutchison White, wife of George White and the sexiest of the White family. She donated the land to the school after George was caught snorting coke off a dirty toilet in a backwoods dive bar. She then went on to berate the drive through operator at Taco Bell for not having fiestas, which are cheese sticks. Watch the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia. It's West Virginia through a microscope, and it's one of the most ridiculous things I have ever seen. If you're familiar at all with early adult swim, it's essentially real-life squidbillies. Also, a few of the characters in that show are voiced by people in that movie. It took three separate attempts to successfully incorporate the town because the seven people that owned 80% of the land didn't want to deal with the taxes they would incur. First try was in 1855, and it didn't even get noticed at the General Assembly. Six years later, on April 12th, was the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, which is probably largely to blame for Rock Hill not filing a second petition until 1868. 
In the petition, they claimed they had around 300 residents, 11 stores, 2 churches, 2 bars, 2 hotels, 2 carriage shops, 3 blacksmith shops, 3 shoe shops, 1 tannery, 1 cabinet shop, and elementary schools. The landowners filed a counter-petition that said there was only 100 people, though, and that they were only temporary residents. I think a difference of around 200 people in a small area would be pretty obvious, but the wealthy elite went again, and the petition fails. Finally, one year later, the petition is presented again and passes this time. In February 1870, Rock Hill is officially a town, and all the wealthy landowners are superbly upset that now they have to pay taxes too. I really wish they would have just called it Rock Ridge, though, so I can make more Blazing Saddles references. Hey, where are the white women at? We're going to fast forward a little bit to the current era. Not quite present day. The bulk of this story takes place in the 90s, but it's close enough that you'll at least have a memory of that year. Remember the holiday season in 1997? I don't. I know that I was 8 years old, and that I was probably playing a ton of N64. I know we had one. Well, I can't remember which Christmas we got it on. I don't know if it was 96 or the next year, but 8-year-old me loved playing some GoldenEye with my brothers. And when they weren't there, I'd play through Star Fox, Mario, and Diddy Kong Racing was really fun. And of course, Smash Brothers. But I'm not here to talk about all the video games that I used to play back in the day. I'm probably still going to, but that's only a minor part of this episode. The main thing that happened in this year was in a little house on Westminster Drive in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm not certain which house it actually happened in, but the neighborhood looks really nice. Lots of tall trees, well-manicured green lawns, flower beds, and if you look at the Google Street View like I did, near the end of the road you'll see four dudes and a backhoe working on installing a new ditch or something. I don't know much about in-ground irrigation systems or pipelines or any of that stuff, but I do know there is a man holding a shovel in that ditch. His face is blurred, but I can guarantee you he is not smiling. I wouldn't want to dig even if I was promised a bunch of buried pirate treasure for doing it. Like, eh, I don't know. I don't know how I would even sell it. Like, would, would, would you have to get all the jewels and stuff? Appra who appraises the value of the pirate chest from a dude who's probably going to lie to me? Probably, so I don't know. Or worse yet, I decide to actually dig it up and there's a chest about four feet down, which is a long fucking way to dig by yourself. And inside the chest, instead of gold, silver, and jewels, is a flimsy paper gift certificate to JCPenney. Because we're in the 90s, remember? Anyway, one of those houses belonged at one point to Earl and Terry Robertson, a hard-working, determined couple who wound up working themselves up to millionaire status. The two had moved to Rock Hill about 27 years prior, I think that's right around 1970, and gave birth to their oldest son James in 1973. When we get back to the 90s again, there will be around 45,000 people living here. Right now, there's only about 33,000 people. Earl was the director of manufacturing at Springs Industries, while Terry worked occasionally at Carolina Counseling. The two were about the same age and loved each other dearly. Their differences in personality seemed to be what kept them together. Terry was completely disorganized, almost polar opposite of her husband, she was the kind of woman that prioritized fun and friendship over small things like chores and cleaning and general upkeep of the house. She'd rather run out and buy a random thoughtful gift for a friend just because it occurred to her that she could. Whereas Earl was the exact opposite. He did exactly the same thing every day at the same time, and that's the way he liked it. His job required him to be exceptionally well organized, as well as having to solve complex analytical problems on a long-range scale. 
James, the oldest son, seemed to start off by taking in his father's footsteps. He was known to be a bit of a math genius and had attended Georgetown University to pursue a degree in engineering and even made it to Eagle Scout just like his father. He also had a younger brother that probably gave him a bit of a chip on his shoulder. The younger brother was named Earl Jr., except for some reason they just called him Chip. See what I did there? It always strikes me as odd when I hear about a younger sibling being named Junior. There's a weird psychological thing with Juniors, either on the parent side or the kid themselves, but one of the two are usually a bit off the beaten path, to put it lightly. If you don't believe me, listen to literally any episode of Crime and Sports, and then after that, compare what those two guys have to say about Juniors to anybody you know who is a Junior, and then get back to me. It's for sure a thing. Also, we're not talking about Chip today, even though I really want to know why they call him that. But he seems to fit the mold for what juniors like to do, too. So, just saying. Jimmy is an asshole, though. Not the one from that other show. Well, I mean, he's cool, though. This Jimmy, today, however, is not. He had a rather privileged upbringing, and despite his parents raising him properly and trying their best to set him up for success, they got him to an Eagle Scout. I don't know how much more set up you can be. Employers love that shit. He just didn't want to have to do any kind of work or really show any sort of accountability beyond let's have a good time. Instead of doing what he's supposed to do, going to school, studying, learning how to be an adult for when he moves out of his parents' house, helping old ladies cross the street, tying knots, whittling, I don't know what Eagle Scouts do. You know, productive member of society shit. No, he's doing none of that. He'd rather fuck around and abuse his Ritalin prescription to have a good time and do whatever angsty rich kid counterculture shit comes with that. He'd inherited a few of his mother's mental health issues, which by today's standards would be called bipolar disorder. Back then, they referred to it as manic depression. Ritalin is normally used to treat ADHD in children and sometimes narcolepsy because of how it binds to different receptors in the brain. And he didn't just take too many and go paint the town brown with his bullshit either. What he liked to do much like in the whites of West Virginia, there's a reason I brought that up, was to crush up his pills and snort them, possibly off the back of a dirty toilet seat. Now, I can't prove that last part definitively, but if you're already snorting pills, what you're snorting them off of is probably a bit less of a priority. Why, though? Why snort Ritalin? Instead of recreational abuse, most abusers of Ritalin-flavored booger sugar use it as a study aid. It binds to dopamine receptors in the brain and central nervous system, making it easier for neurons to create the positive reward feedback loop for completing simple tasks. For example, rearranging your desk could feel like you just came first place in a race. But why would an individual choose to snort or smoke a pill instead of swallowing it like a normal person? What does that actually do? It all has to do with biology and something called bioavailability. When you swallow the pill, as you're supposed to, only around 11 to 52% of the drug is bioavailable, meaning only that amount is what makes it to the bloodstream. However, altering the method of ingestion may increase the bioavailability of the drug. When you abuse Ritalin, simple things become much more exciting and rewarding to do. There's a reason people do drugs. Because they work. Cleaning the kitchen, scooping the litter box, folding laundry, and vacuuming the carpet and cleaning the kitchen again because it's somehow the only room in the house that always needs something cleaned. But with Ritalin, that chore list is as good as gone. Never again will you have a mountain of shit to do just waiting for you to get around to it. Ritalin won't let you. It gives your brain too much of that sweet, sweet, cavity-causing brain candy. Wash that dish? Brain candy. Pick up that scrap of paper off the table? Brain candy. 
Brush your teeth three times in a row. Brain candy. Pet the cat. Pick your nose. Walk upstairs without tripping. Putting together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle in 17 minutes. Getting lost in a video game. Doing obscure side quests. Petting the cat again. All of these things become possible when you have focus medicine on a mainline to your brain. All of those things are a definite real-world possibility, but what really happens if you abuse Ritalin for too long, as in to your body? Ritalin abuse may include increased heart rate and blood pressure, sleep problems, physical and mental health problems. Just like with any drug, abuse comes at a price, and it's probably not worth it. We don't recommend it. You would think that being an Eagle Scout math genius at Georgetown who had mega-rich parents that loved him would be able to figure out that his equation for fun was not exactly equal on both sides. His critical reasoning skills seemed to be a bit diminished, probably because he was snorting fucking Ritalin. When you're a victim of substance abuse, though, it's like trying to solve for X, but the equation only has Y as the variable. He started getting into a bit of trouble with the laws when he was in junior high, and it escalated from there, as things usually do. Jimmy knows why he's doing drugs, though. He doesn't need an equation for that. If you had one, though, it would be this plus me equals fun. And that's also part of why he dropped out of Georgetown. Why go to school when you can stay home and do drugs instead? Yeah, I mean, really, how bad could it be? I mean, he's got friends, money, social clout, a girlfriend named Meredith that we'll talk about later, a brother that he's close to, and he's intelligent. That's a thing that really bothers me about this guy, too. He's not an idiot. He's just an entitled, manipulative dickhead. We've encountered a few of those on this show. This is, what, episode 25? Oh, I've done 25 of these. Um, the first few were sort of historical, and I don't know, probably 20 or so that have been on this show so far. William Wood, though, is probably not one of them. I don't know much about him and his wife beyond the fact that they were the next-door neighbors of the Robertsons, but he isn't currently sitting on death row like our guy today. Spoiler alert. This is not a happy ending. Just about a year before the really nasty stuff takes place, Jimmy decided to pay Mr. Wood a visit, except for this visit took place when Mr. Wood was not at home. Nor was any other resident of the home. So he broke in? Yeah, he broke in. He broke in and took pretty much everything of value that wasn't tied down or affixed to the floor. Television, camcorder, which is a really old school word, jewelry, checks, and credit card. On top of ransacking the entire house. Then he used the credit cards to go to Sears. Hold on, though. How did he get to Sears carrying all that stuff, you might be wondering? Well, how do you transport a bunch of stuff you stole from the neighbor's house? Duh, he stole his car, too. Toyota Celica, which I think my dad had one of those for a while. When he got to Sears, he bought six TVs, six VCRs, several radar detectors, a set of tires for some reason, and around $3,800 in other goods. And then to top it all off, he used a checkbook that he also stole to write a check for a bouquet of roses at the local florist. I've read over this like 50 times, and that tire thing makes me laugh because it's the most out-of-place thing to get. He's just got to be so focused on the immediate task at hand from snorting Ritalin that it just doesn't matter what he takes. It's like in meatballs. It just doesn't matter. I mean, sure, he's got a great home life. His parents aren't abusive. He's got tons of disposable income coming from somewhere. I mean, look at all that cool stuff he just got. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he broke into his neighbor's house because his neighbor is also really rich and can replace it. 
and that stuff's about to be obsolete anyway, so why not just take it? It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter that he just pulled off the most 90s robbery ever because it's not the 90s anymore. We're in 2023 now. And it certainly doesn't matter that he bought a set of tires for a car that he stole because it wasn't even his money to begin with. It doesn't matter. And if none of that matters, then it definitely doesn't matter about the roses. Sure, whoever gets them will appreciate it, and they may even reciprocate. But the roses are still going to die. And then guess what? You have to go out and acquire more roses all over again. So, it just doesn't matter. 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 Okay, we get it. Okay, that was ridiculous, but it doesn't matter. We've got more story ahead of us. I would imagine the woods coming home to this scene and being quite upset, confused, and really curious as to who might have done this. At least until Jimmy's parents got home and discovered both of their wallets turned inside out and dumped out all over the floor. They're referred to in this article as pocketbook and billfold, by the way. I love these old words. And also a note from Jimmy claiming that Chip needed him for something and that that's where he was. The note said, Mom and Dad, gone to get Chip in his car. Sorry, but he needs me right now. Love, Jim. Probation officers found a bunch of weed in the house the day before the robbery, so police were already under a bolo alert for Jimmy. Be on the lookout, as he's now a violator, and to look out for a red Mazda. I guess he ditched the Celica somewhere. Not long after, Jimmy is arrested and charged with two counts of grand larceny, second-degree burglary, forgery, and fraudulent use of a credit card that he is sentenced to six years in prison for. In Jimmy's confession, he reveals that he broke the latch to one of the doors on the Woods' house early Saturday morning. He had returned to the house several times throughout the day to pilfer what he could. I'm guessing the reason for that he went back a couple of times is because he wore socks on his hands while moving through the house. You know, must be tough to grip anything because you have a fucking sock on your hand. Could he not get a glove? He had the forethought to know that he shouldn't leave fingerprints if he doesn't want to get caught. But he can't figure out that a glove is a better choice than sock? His parents have money and, and probably gloves. How much Ritalin did he fucking snort? He's focusing on the wrong things. Authorities decide to drop the drug charges pending completion of a rehab program, and on September 3, 1996, he is sent to the Lee Correctional Institute, where he had drug and anger rehab. He was just a few months shy of 23. Based on some very recent headlines I discovered, not a great place to be. Back in 2018, so five years ago, this place was the location of the deadliest prison riot in the United States in the last 25 years. Conditions leading up to that point were Probably not very accommodating. By the way, this is going to piss you off. When he went to prison in 1996, the average cost of rent was about $550 a month and gas was $1.22. I want that again so badly. <sighs> okay, I'm back. And so is Jimmy. He only served 10 months of his sentence and was paroled in July of 1997. I guess that's what happens when you come from money. By August, he's moved into his friend Darren Keller's apartment as his roommate, 
and had dear old dad cut him a check for $225 for his half of the rent, as well as a security deposit for an additional $200. Now, this living arrangement might sound appealing on the surface, but here's the thing about rehab programs, particularly prison rehab programs. They don't work very well. In prison, not only are the programs themselves very expensive, but they seem to have an effective rate only between about 15 and 30%, depending on which prison you examine. The United States houses around 20% of the total amount of prisoners in the entire fucking world. So for as expensive as they are to maintain, those numbers ought to be a whole lot fucking bigger than they are. Don't get me wrong, though. The idea behind those types of programs are wonderful, and we need to work toward destigmatizing them a little more. It's getting there, but not quite yet. From what I've personally seen from those programs, it's that for a lot of people, it's either a band-aid or they have this weird mental thing where if they attend an AA meeting or if they reach out to somebody, it then it doesn't count. If they reach out and get help from another person or something, like the only way they can picture themselves being clean is through their own actions. It's a weird thing. A lot of people that I saw were like that. And even then, when you can convince them to give it a shot, they relapse within just a couple of months and they're falling right back into their old patterns of behavior. Jimothy is no exception to this. Within three months of being out of prison and into his homie's apartment, Jamantha has been forcibly removed from his apartment and taken up residence with his parents once again. Keller said that he got tired of Jamanda always having creepy-looking shady guys over all the time and that Jimalina was doing way too many drugs and that he didn't even offer to share. That last part might not be totally true. But there was no surface or empty beer can in that apartment that was safe from having Ritalin snorted off of it or having weed smoked out of it. Not while Jim membership lives there. Back at home, Jim is getting settled into life at his parents' house again. His plan is to stay there through the holidays, and he'll figure out where to go from there after the new year. He's now 23, fresh out of prison, back at his parents' house after doing everything in his power to be a shitty roommate. He's grooving on some kind of powder he just put up his nose, or maybe just some weed, and it's almost Thanksgiving. In a couple days, kitchen tables are going to be gym-packed with turkey and stuffing and ham and corn and mashed potatoes and pie and everything else that sounds good that day. I like the usual Thanksgiving spreads, but I also like to pull out all the stops and experiment with different stuff around the holidays. Last Thanksgiving, I made some butternut squash soup, and it was really awesome. I went to a family friend's home last year, and everybody seemed to really enjoy it, even their grandkids who were all under 13, so that's like a, an achievement for me. Except for the oldest grandkid. She'd never had that kind of soup before, but she wanted to make sure that I knew that she liked it. So she comes over to me, holding this bowl of brown, oily-looking liquid with chunks in it, takes a bite, swallows, and then tells me, This is really good soup! And at that moment is when her mother walks by and very loudly says, That's the gravy, Amanda! I wasn't going to say anything to her, though. I wanted to see how long I could keep it going that she was actually eating my soup and not just a big-ass bowl of giblet gravy, but her mother ruined it. And then her mother and I went to go smoke a bunch of weed in the bathroom before we ate, so it was a pretty good Thanksgiving. And I've never seen a 13-year-old girl get so embarrassed so fast. It was hilarious. Thanksgiving, 1997. Oh, the turkey looks great. 
It's actually a few days before Thanksgiving on November 25th, but if you have a frozen turkey, that thing better be almost thawed out by now. I'm not eating frozen turkey. Terry was supposed to pick up coconut cake from one of her friends that day, but nobody could get a hold of her. Martha George, who baked the cake, called her friend Linda Weaver. Linda Weaver then called Debbie Brisson, who worked with Terry on occasion at Carolina Counseling, and this went on for some time until Debbie took it upon herself to go over to the house to check on her. Because this is very much not like Terry. Terry loved her friends and family and wouldn't just disappear like that without telling anybody. And Earl was supposed to have had a work meeting at 8 a.m. that day, but as of 9 a.m. when the phone tree began, neither of them were accounted for. Margie Jordan, an employee of Earl Robertson's at Spring Industries, called the police to do a welfare check at the same time Debbie was en route to do the same. The police get there first, an officer by the name of Greg Maggart. He arrives, knocks on the door, rings the doorbell. No answer. He walks around to the side of the house, by the Cadillac and family road trip van in the driveway, through the carport, to the back door, and apart from a small white dog barking in the window, there wasn't really anything out of place. He approaches a neighbor working in the yard and asks him if he's seen the Robertsons today. The neighbor tells him that, If the red car is gone, then he's gone. He leaves before I get up and comes home after I go to bed. Greg has no choice but to take the man's word and what he's seen at face value, so he leaves. Drives a mile or so up the road to a gas station to get to a payphone and call Margie back. Remember payphones? I'm trying to think of the last place I saw a payphone in the wild, but I'm coming up empty here. Anyway, Greg drops a dime on old Margie and calls her back to explain the situation. Nobody answered, and the neighbor said he was gone. Margie is having none of it. She said, Earl has never missed a single day of work. He is always the first person here and the last person to leave. Again, Greg tells her that he didn't see anything at the house. In a last desperate attempt to find answers, Margie tells him Earl had set up a meeting at 8 a.m. and he didn't show up. Something is wrong. Their son just moved back in with him after getting out of prison. Maybe he knows something? And that part right there. That's the part that made Greg rethink his approach and return to the house. Meanwhile, Debbie is already at the house. She parked in the driveway behind the Cadillac, and in almost the exact same steps Greg took about 20 minutes earlier, she knocks on the door, rings the doorbell, no answer. Goes around to the back door, doesn't see anything but the dog. But then she notices that the storm door is ajar, and the glass part of the door has been shattered. That's not good. The storm door leads into the basement that had been refinished as a two-bedroom apartment for Jimmy and Chip. That would be fucking cool. Complete with its own kitchen and bathroom. Oh, that sounds awesome. I kind of want that. Wish my place was underground. She makes her way through the dark basement, shouting for Terry the whole way opens the door to the top of the stairs and heads off down the hallway toward Terry's bedroom when she trips over something. It was Earl, lying face down in just his underwear. His skull had been smashed in with something, and what used to be a soft light blue carpet and white walls were now covered in blood. She screams, runs the fuck out of there, no idea what might have happened to Terry in the bedroom, or if she's even alone in the house. Maybe whoever did this is still here. Debbie runs downstairs to try to make her escape from the front door, but it's secured with a deadbolt that she can't seem to figure out, probably due to adrenaline and just discovering a dead body in the middle of a hallway. She notices the phone is off the hook, fumbles with that for a little while until she can manage to call her boss back at the office, who says, Why are you calling me? Call the cops! Don't worry though, you don't need to call the cops. They're already there. 
Greg's back at the house, and he can see Debbie through the window trying to get out. He tells her to go around the side of the house, and I'll help pull you out of the window. And the entire time he's doing this, Debbie's just screaming, He's dead! He's dead! She's gotta be just losing her mind inside that house right now. Jesus Christ. About an hour later, Lieutenant Gary Rollins answers Greg's call for backup, and they begin their investigation. At the top of the stairs, they found Earl's body had been beaten by a blunt object all across his back and a gouge in the back of his skull. His hands were tucked underneath his abdomen and there was a strange mark on his back. Not a cut or a bruise, but it was about the size of a rope right down the middle. The walls, doors, floors, and ceilings were all spattered with straight lines of blood and on the floor next to the body was a pair of jeans, some Jordans, and a bottle of Tylex by his left leg. Imagine being these cops and seeing all this. Okay, now imagine being these cops, seeing all this, and then noticing the only other open door in the hallway has a light on. Ah, uh, shit. We, have, we aren't done here, are we? Greg approaches the door, adrenaline pumping, and he throws it open. Inside, he instantly spots a kitchen knife on the bed next to a pile of blankets and sheets. Whatever color the sheets used to be, though, has been obscured by all the blood stains on them. Terry Robertson was lying on her back in between the bed and the wall, her arm jutting out of a pile of linen. I'll just cover this up really quickly. She had been savagely attacked with the kitchen knife to the point that the tip of the knife broke off. That is so much rage to be able to break a knife. Go to your kitchen later and try to break one of your knives. I bet you can't do it. I bet I can't do it. I bet no one who listens to this show could, by sheer force of will, break any of their kitchen knives just by using it too hard. I don't think anyone... No, that's... I don't have near enough pent-up rage to be able to figure out how to break metal with my bare hands. I, I couldn't be able to do that. That's, that's too much. She had been stabbed multiple times, slashed all over her arms and face, and her throat had been cut from ear to ear under the chin. Around the bedroom and the rest of the house, everything had been turned upside down looking for anything of value. The contents of Terry's purse had been dumped out all over the floor, which had in it some more checks, some paper, and of course we're in the 90s so you can't forget about the Blockbuster membership card. I gotta go rent Titanic, I'll be back later. Lieutenant Rollins radios the dispatch. Notified detectives, two victims deceased. Homicide wasn't exactly unknown to the detectives. They'd worked a few cases before. Nothing quite like this, though. This was the most brutal homicide Rock Hill had ever seen. One investigator is quoted as saying, That guy's head looked like a crushed tomato. It... I just really hope when I die that my head isn't compared to a smushed fruit. Detectives are already pretty sure they have a suspect for whoever did this, but something about the scene just isn't adding up. Where the hell's that math genius kid of theirs? He might have been able to find a solution to this equation. They are correct yet again, and it doesn't take long to track down Jim Braham, and he is arrested for the murder of his own parents, who were murdered. Oh yeah, I haven't really talked about her too much, but his girlfriend Meredith Moon was also arrested. Together they are charged with two counts of armed robbery. Together they are charged with two counts of murder, armed robbery, and credit card fraud. Why did they arrest her? Because as Jimbo was inside destroying everything and everyone inside the house, 
Meredith was just chilling out in the car, just waiting for him to come back. He's inside doing his thing, just in there, murdering his parents. Just, I'll wait right here. Really, Meredith? During the trial, attorneys did everything they could to provide some kind of defense for the spoiled little fuck, claiming that he and his mother both suffered from manic depression or bipolar disorder and that his frontal lobes were abnormal. They were trying to say that because of his drug-induced psychosis from abusing so many drugs like Ritalin and whatever else he could get his mooch and hands on, that he may have not been cognitively aware of the severity of his actions. It was revealed during the trial that Jimmy had made a couple of phone calls to younger brother Chip the day of the murders, but he was not considered an accomplice due to the fact that Chip's already in jail for a different drug charge. What did he do, inject some marijuana? Bill Hancock and Jim Boyd are essentially just taking up space in the courtroom. They are also Jim Robertson's defense attorneys. Now, there's not a whole lot you can take from a case like this to defend against, so their major strategy was basically just to avoid the death penalty. Let's listen to what Jimmy's attorney Jim has to say, and no, he didn't represent himself, it's just another dude named Jim. Jim Boyd said he'd promised his two-year-old son at birth that no matter what, he would always love him. Even if that two-year-old son grew up to be a mass murderer, or even if he killed Boyd himself. Jim Boyd goes on to say, quote, If James Robertson had killed someone else, they, his parents, would be sitting right here behind him. And I say their spirits are sitting right there behind him now, and I submit to you, they cry out for you to save his life. It says that his voice cracked as he said that in court, so I imagine he said it like, And I say their spirits are sitting right there behind him now, and I submit to you, they cry out for you to save his life. Probably something really theatrical like that. But he just said, if he killed someone else, his parents would still be here. Bravo, Jim. Only problem with that, besides that it's a really dumb thing to say in court, is that he did kill his parents, and they're not sitting there right behind him, so they can't testify on his behalf. Although, I guess you do kind of have to say something, even if it's just some weird-tasting word salad. I like my salad with ranch. What? Dude, we don't eat salad. That shit's gross. By the way, why are you so quiet today? Because we smoked for 12 hours yesterday, and then only slept for four, and now it's nighttime again. I'm tired. Fuck off. Hey, you fuck off. Not to mention, the way gym class did things really makes it look like he for sure knew what he was doing. The socks on his hands when he broke into the neighbor's house the year before... His girlfriend waiting in the car outside for him, breaking into the house in a really sneaky way. And then the murder itself was just gross. He creeps along the hallway to ambush his own mother while she's lying in bed. Meanwhile, dad's in the shower. Jimmy attacked his own mother with a butcher knife and a claw hammer in her own bed while his father showered. Earl hears screaming coming from the bedroom, jumps out of the shower, throws on his undies, and when Jimmy sees Dad barreling at him down the hallway, he grabs a bottle of Tylex, sprays him in the eyes with it, and starts wailing on him with a baseball bat. That's that strange mark from earlier. And the back part of the hammer, which is where the gouge in the skull came from. He had only been back in the house for three days when this happened. 
But why did he do all this? I know we've all been dying to know. Jimmy was afraid that his parents would spend his portion of their $2.2 million estate to which he was the heir apparent. Kill my parents for the money, right? That's the one? That's doable. I can get away with that? What the fuck, Jimmy? Now that I've told you all of that, here's what Jimmy says about it whenever he took the stand. Quote, I miss my parents. I must live with this every day of my life. What happened that morning remains so vividly in my mind, I'll never be able to explain. I'll never know why or how or anything. I know that it happened, and I can't even explain... I can't even explain to my attorneys what happened. Curious how such a vivid memory is so hard to pick details out of, isn't it? Almost like he's not being completely truthful. Like an asshole. 16th Circuit Court Solicitor Tommy Pope said, If this case doesn't beg for a death penalty, then there isn't a case that deserves one. I kind of can't disagree with that. We've had a couple death sentences on here, and, you know, I'm kind of weird about that because we fuck it up a lot. But this is the guy that that penalty was designed for. He's a highly intelligent, violent, aggressive sociopath with little to no regard for human life. Look what he just did to his parents. Imagine what he might have done to a stranger. Pope also said, This man, this woman, these parents did not die an easy death. He drained them mentally, he drained them physically, and eventually he drained every drop of blood from their bodies. This case screams out like Terry screamed that day. I beg you to hear it. Hear it, Pope said, his voice thundering through the courtroom. Summon the courage to answer that scream that this man deserves death. He is really fucking driving it home. And unsurprisingly, the jury hears all that and finds him guilty. Girlfriend Meredith Moon, also guilty, and is sentenced to 20 years in prison for her part in all of this. She took a plea bargain to reduce her sentence in exchange for testimony. And Judge John Hayes sentences Jim to death with an execution date set for June 1st, but that's kind of just a formality as there will be an automatic appeal for the death sentence. I think this trial took place just shortly after the new year in 99, but I, I can't find a definitive date in any of the articles that I found, but I think it was just a couple months after the murders. And for the past 25 years, Jimmy James Robertson has been filing all sorts of different appeals and shit with the court. A few days before his execution date in 2005, he blamed his lawyers for something, probably ineffective assistance of counsel, because that always comes up. And that got him an extension to 2010, which that was then appealed on the grounds that he was wrongfully convicted. I don't know how he pulled that off. Then again in 2016, and most recently in 2019. Seems like he's just dragging it out as long as he can to be as big of a pain in the ass as he can. Hold on though, story's not over. His parents had a very large fortune. Most of those have a financial advisor attached to them, and they are no exception. Their financial advisor and planner, Gene Sullivan, found himself in a bit of hot water back in 2010. He had been stealing from his clients. He had stolen more than two and a half million dollars from elderly friends and clients. 
then used the money to pay other investors and also expensive shit for himself and his family. He told insurance investigators, not entirely sure why, that he was going to, quote, play the game for as long as I could and let someone else clean it up. Then he went on to praise Bernie Madoff. What a fucking sleazehole, man. This guy's a piece of shit. This is amazing, though, right here. U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Perry acknowledged his 30 years of community service and reduced the sentence for Gene Sullivan just a little bit, so... Judge Chandler suggested a window of 51 to 63 months in prison, stating that, quote, Yours is not as egregious as Madoff's, but it's of the same sort. I think Gene Sullivan's still in jail, and I cannot find anything on Chip for the life of me, but I kind of have to imagine he's probably in jail too. Or if he's not, he probably hasn't been out for very long. I hope I'm wrong about that, and maybe he's straightened out, but probably not. And I just now found our guy's actual death row prison documents, complete with all the sanctions against him. I'm like 99% certain this is him anyway. The admission date on the PDF that I found says March 27th, 99. It took place in York County, and it's exactly his name. And also the exact same charges that we just talked about like 10 minutes ago. So I'm just going to say it's him. He looks awful. He kind of looks like Dan Aykroyd in Coneheads, but just not quite as tall of a head. And probably way less teeth. Do you want to see what kind of trouble this guy got into when he was in prison? Oh, fuck yeah, I do. Yeah, I know you do. That's why I brought it up. Let's see. August 26, 2021. Possession or an attempt to possess a cell phone. He lost canteen privileges for 100 days. 10 days of disciplinary detention, which I think is solitary. I, I don't know what else that would be. I don't know where else in prison you go to be detained. You go to detention in prison. The whole building is one big detention center. And the definition I found for disciplinary detention says removed from gin pop. So I think that's solitary, but for a cell phone? Really? He also lost phone and visitation privileges for 100 days. September 1st, 2016. Same exact thing. Um, attempting to or possession of a cell phone. Except this time it's 20 days in the hole. And he also lost TV privileges for the entire year on that one. 360 days. Those are his only two infractions, but he has been moving around a fucking lot. Since he went in in 1999, between trials and back and forth from death row to medical, he's been outside of prison walls 36 times and in seven different locations. That seems like a lot for a death row double parasite murderer. You know what? I think that's a good place to go ahead and call it for the evening. There's your story, folks. What a crazy fucking story. From snorting Ritalin to putting socks on your hands and then murdering your parents for $2 million and didn't even get the $2 million and then now you've been on death row for the past 25 years trying to lie about getting out of it. What a crazy fucking story. Thank you all so much to all my listeners out there. I know we are small, but we are mighty. This year, I really want to step up the self-promotion side of things and really put some actual effort into advertising for the show in different places. I want to get myself and all my wacky voices in the ears of as many people as I can. I try my hardest to tell a story that would otherwise be really difficult to listen to in a fun and memorable way. 
which is why I choose to make jokes around murder. I think it's easier to retain certain information when it's presented in a way that's much simpler to digest. Not that there's anything wrong with doing it the other way, like murder porn type shows. It, it's just really hard for me to talk in such a flat tone. I have to put some infections and some emphasis on different syllables. That's all from us today, folks. If you want to help us out, honestly, the best thing you can do, tell your friends. Listen to the show. Get them to listen to the show. Not in the same room as you on different devices. <laughs> that makes it better for some reason if it's two different people listening. It doesn't matter. Tell your friends to listen to the show. Another way you can be super cool is if you go on iTunes and hit the little thing that says this is the best show ever. It'll look like a star. I want you to push the one that's got a five next to it. For some reason, that makes me look good when people do that. And here's the thing, though. It also makes you look good because I see that. And then I get more excited about the show, and then I make you laugh harder. So it's quid pro quo, right? Anyway, have a good night, everybody. I have to go snort Ritalin off my toilet and then clean the kitchen. So I'll see you in a couple weeks. Stay kind. Stay kind. <laughs>